the story behind the story in faith, culture, news, and entertainment. This is this is Billy Hallowell. Hey Ben, how's it going today? It's going okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So thanks for coming on. You know, I've got a I got to start with your signature line, which uh, which I know you've repeated many times before. You've got it uh, pinned to the top of your Twitter feed. Facts don't care about your feelings. And I think, you know, it's just fascinating looking at where we are right now. We're in this era of fact confusion. And I think you, you pinned that a couple of years ago. I mean, this is a line you've been saying repeatedly, and it seems to be a problem that's getting worse and worse. So what do you, what do you think is driving this, uh, this fact confusion we're living in? Well, I mean, I think that, that folks now treasure the subjective over the objective. I think there, there are a lot of folks who the, the facts don't make them feel good about themselves. They don't make them feel good about the narrative that they tell about their own lives. And so instead they seek to disown the facts, suggest that the facts don't say what the facts say so that they can avoid a debate and turn it into a, a question of, you know, others who are supposedly not civil enough dis- taking no stock of their feelings. It, it, turns into, it turns every factual argument into a character argument, uh, and that's where the left seems to be more comfortable because factual arguments, you might be able to come to an actual conclusion that doesn't require you to demonize your opponent. The left doesn't seem particularly comfortable with that these days. Well, which is crazy because you talk about this notion of liberalism, right? What, like being fair to others' views, listening to them, walking away and saying, you know, we can agree to disagree. But it seems like the art of being able to do that is just eroding faster than, than ever before. No question. I mean, right now people are getting a lot of pleasure, particularly in the social media era, from just smacking people. Uh, and it, it's easy to do that from behind uh, a screen. It's harder to do that when you're actually in person. And, and this is one of the problems with having an online society. It, it's easier to be mean and nasty when you don't actually have to look in the face of the person you're being mean and nasty to. Most people are not as mean and nasty in an elevator as they are in their own car, as Louis C.K. <laughs> pointed out. Uh, and I think that that holds you know, triply true when there's anonymity on the Internet. Right. You can just hide. You can hide behind it. And you I mean, you've been you've faced a lot of this yourself. Obviously, you're vocal. You've been out there. You, you've you've shared a lot of viewpoints and uh, you do a great job of expressing what you believe, doing it in a smart way. Um, what, what are some of the reactions that you have personally received that have sort of shocked you maybe over the years? Uh, yeah, I think that there are a bunch of reactions that shock me. I mean, the, the first reaction I get that, that shocks me is when people on the left suggest that because I disagree with them, I'm a white supremacist, which is always weird to me. Um, you know, the, uh, I'm an Orthodox Jew who was the number one target of the alt-right in 2016, according to the Anti-Defamation League. So uh, that's that's a weird one. Uh, the, the accusations that I am a mean person are a little bit weird. Number one, because I don't really care all that much what you think about me as, as a human being. But second of all, because the, the examples of me being mean typically involve me just saying things that you don't like or uh, like being true and then you being offended by them. That, that's always a puzzling thing. Uh, the, the, and, and then finally, I think we live in a society where everybody expects you to be part of a tribe, and if you don't want to be part of a tribe, where, where you, you want to let your values shape how you feel about things as opposed to simply following the pack, uh, then this makes you a, a target for a lot of derision from people on every side of the aisle whenever you, whenever you cross them. Well, and the thing is, you've, you've tackled the issues, the hot-button issues that we continue to debate, abortion, the transgender issue. I mean, you go down the line, you've talked about almost everything. And these are things that get people on both sides, you know, worked up. Is there one particular issue for you that you think is sort of the most pressing culturally out of all the things that you've been passionate about speaking on? Uh, I mean, I, I do think that the, the biggest problem that I've seen culturally right now 
um, is just the, the general tendency to, to, to substitute the subjective for the objective. And, and that has a lot of permutations. One of those, I think, is the rise of this idea that gender is socially constructed, that there's no actual biological basis for gender. But that's, that's a subsection of a broader problem, which is people deciding that, that facts are significantly less important than self-interpretation. People using phrases like my truth as opposed to the truth and me saying, well, there's no such thing one. as your truth. There's just facts and then there's your opinion. And it's fine. You're allowed to have opinions, but let's not pretend that your opinions are sacrosanct. Well, uh, th that it's sort of funny. stuff is, is not in fashion, unfortunately. Well, it's funny. That, yeah, when people say my truth, it, it sort of grates on me because it's like, no, you know, you don't just get to say that anything is true. There, there is a truth, right? You might not agree with truth. You might believe your own, you know, alternative reality, but that's not truth. Right. And, and, and this is part of the problem. Once you agree that there is an objective standard of truth out there, then you have an obligation to actually seek that truth in a good faith way with logical argument. And the idea behind all Republican politics, not big R, small r, behind all Republican politics is the idea that if we start from the same set of facts and if we use the logical, the, the logical tools at our disposal, we can at least have an honest conversation about the possibility of solutions or a range of possible solutions that may in fact be, be plausible. Instead, we've decided that we're not going to agree on the facts. We're not going to agree to use logic. And so we just shout at each other and, and we shout and, and any shout against you uh, against your opinion is is taken as a is an attack on your character, and that's that's pretty gross. Well, it's crazy. It's crazy. And I want to get into a few more of these issues, but I wanted to ask you about your, you know, getting into media. I mean, you were doing this pretty young. I think you were seventeen when Creator Syndicate uh, hired you, and I think you were the youngest syndicated columnist in the country at the time. What what was your path? Because I don't think a lot of people know. You know like when we hear from you, it's sort of it, it's opinions. You're talking about current events, but like the backstory. What led you to get into this field? Uh, so I've been in it for a long time. So I, I originally thought when I went to college that I was going to major, double major in music and genetic science. Uh, and then uh, that did not end up happening, obviously. Uh, I was a, a concert level violinist um, and very interested in working for Amgen as a researcher, actually. Uh, and instead, what ended up happening is in the first couple of weeks, I was on campus. I looked at the UCLA Daily Bruin. There was an editorial in there, or not bad, by somebody comparing Ariel Sharon, then the prime minister of Israel, to Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi. Uh, and I walked into their offices and I said, I'd like to write a counter to that. And they said, sure. And that turned into a biweekly point counterpoint column. And that turned into just a normal column. And after a year and a half of doing that, I was talking to my dad one day and I said, do you think my stuff is good enough to be in, you know, a, an actual newspaper? And he said, yeah, I think so. Why don't we see, you know, what's out there? And so he found Creator Syndicate, which was the, the syndicator for David Limbaugh and at the time Molly Ivins, among other people. And I just applied cold. I sent in my columns with a, with a resume, and three weeks later, they called me and said they wanted to syndicate me, and that was basically how I got started in this field. Is it, I mean, that's that's crazy, That seeing that one thing and having that sort of spark that changed everything. I mean, is it ever weird to you now, looking back at the growth and the influence that you've had um, and that you currently have on culture, and you look back on that, is it like, what in the world? Like, how did I end up on this path? It's definitely weird. <laughs> it's definitely weird. I mean, the, the, the fact that um, you, know, you start off thinking one, you're going to go in one direction, you end up going in a completely other direction and, and working in it for a long time. I mean, that's the other thing is that, you know, now I have, you know, 4.5 million followers on Facebook and, and 1.5 million on, on Twitter and all this. But I've been in this field for a very long time, right? I'm 34 years old and I've literally spent half my life in this field. Uh, and so at this point, it sort of feels like, yeah, I've been doing this. This is, this is my career. Um, but when you look back at the way that these things get started, it's always odd to sort of find that you've fallen into it a little bit. That's right. right. 
Yeah, and you know, it's it's uh, is it ever exhausting for you that because this is when you're talking about this stuff day in and day out, and you're getting that pushback. And I know you get to a point where you sort of say, "I don't care what people think," but do you ever sort of hit a point where you're like, "Man, you know, is is this something that I want to do forever?" I mean, I'm just curious to know. Oh yeah, on, on a fairly on a fairly regular basis. I mean, the, the truth is, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I, I love the fact that I get to speak about issues that I think are important. Um, but on days when everything is headline driven as opposed to values driven, or on days when you know, I, I feel like everybody else does in this space that you're being unfairly attacked. And you think to yourself, man, I wish I had gone and played in string quartets. Like this is <laughs> playing Brahms a lot more enjoyable a lot than, more fun. than being attacked on Twitter after, you know, like last week is a good example. Last week there was an actor who came, actor director who came out and said, I was a nice guy and people should follow me. And the entire world was lit on fire. And I just thought to myself, like, really? Like, I'm just sitting here. Like I literally was just sitting here. I didn't even provoke this one i was just sitting here <laughs> and suddenly the world is on fire doing yeah i'm literally doing nothing and suddenly everybody is going crazy it's just it's 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 absolutely wild and at those points you think yeah i need to turn off twitter and go get a life well and it's like you know that's the thing though this whole notion of saying somebody's a good guy or a nice person it's like yeah you can think somebody you disagree with is nice that's okay i mean i live in new york city i all of my friends most of them i don't agree with and there's something to that, but but we've gotten to this place where it's like, wait, you said that person's nice. They can't be nice because they're on the other side of the aisle. I mean, that that's not a healthy place to be as a culture. No, it definitely is not. And I think, by the way, that it is more telling with regard to um, w- with regard to the left and to the right. I, I think that people on the right uh, tend to think less about the supposedly evil character of people who disagree with them on politics. People on the left have made this a core part of their of their appeal. Well, it's a, it's the, a which is what, aspect too. You know, you're gonna you're gonna no question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote a book literally titled "Bullies" in 2013. It was a New York Times bestseller, and I said, "This is what the left does." And any candidate who basically runs against this is going to do well. And then Donald Trump came along. So it's <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that anybody who's willing to punch back against this sort of bully tactics and character assaults uh, is is bound to to draw a fair bit of support. Well, now you've and you've been a you've been a staunch you know Trump critic as many people have um, on both sides of the aisle. At what has anything changed for you these past sure. you know twenty months? Just take me through some of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, for, I said I wouldn't vote for Trump. I didn't vote for Trump. Uh, and then once he was president, the question becomes, how is he going to perform in the job? And what I've seen is that the president, you know, is exactly who I thought he was as a, as a person, but he is not what I thought he was on on policy. So the policy from the Trump administration has overall been extraordinarily conservative, and so I'm very happy with that. I was I was very disquieted by his candidacy because I thought that he was going to govern as he talked, which is to say haphazard, uh, sometimes far to the left, and instead he's been very consistently conservative. I'm not sure you would have seen you know a, a major difference between, say, a, a Mike Pence presidency and a Donald Trump presidency in terms of policy. As far as his sort of personal failings and the fact that he uses rhetoric the way that he does, look, just like everybody else, as a conservative, sometimes I thrill when the hammer hits the nail, I just cringe a lot when the hammer hits a baby, uh, and so you know I've I've I created this matrix that I've been using this way of viewing Trump during the 2016 election called Good Trump Bad Trump, and it was called like I see it, and I've been doing that ever since. And so when it comes to policy, calling it like I see it, I think has been good to excellent. And on you know rhetoric, I think that he has been mediocre to terrible. So it's it, I, I've never seen quite such a bifurcation between the two. It's strange. It's really strange. And I mean, the whole thing is bizarre. The fact that he was able to win the who he is, all of it. I mean, being a New Yorker, seeing that he's a New Yorker, but obviously it's definitely it was, a weird timeline. I mean, it, so clearly, weird. clearly Biff in this timeline, Biff actually made it back to 1955 and actually gave himself the, the sports playbook. And we're living in that timeline because this is a very, very weird it's, timeline. It's like the upside down. Like we're kind of living in the upside down. It's, it's weird. But 
But we get good judges. I mean, right? I mean, <laughs> you got to appreciate some aspects of the upside down. Well, and well, and that's the thing. I think that's why, though, so many people were willing to hold their nose and vote. And you know, a lot of people held their own, like you, and said they weren't going to do it. But but I think seeing the end result of the policies, the difference between those policies and who he is, it continues to fascinate me. Um, and why does yeah. he, why is he so open to these judges? And why has he chosen to go this route? I don't know. It's it's interesting. I mean, my guess, honestly, is that the president. I think every president only cares about a couple of things. Uh, and I think the things that Trump cares about particularly are a, a feeling of pro-Americanism, which is great, uh, and tariffs. I mean, I really, I, I don't think he cares that much about anything else. Uh, well, legacy. And like, I mean, he cares about Trump. Right. right. No, and he definitely cares about Trump. He definitely cares about Trump. But I don't think that's unique to Trump. I think it's just no. exacerbated with Trump. I think Obama cared a lot about that. Of I think course. Bush cared a lot about it. Hillary um, for you know, sure. For, for, <laughs> Hillary for sure did. So I don't, I don't think, I think anybody who runs for president is deeply concerned with how people see them. Um, but. The, what that means is that he's delegating a lot of the policy to people who know better than he. And and that is great. I mean, that, that means that there are people who I trust in charge of judges. Like, he's not sitting there vetting judges. Exactly. He's letting Leonard Leo do it. And that's that's totally fine with me. That's great. Uh, you know, what if he would delegate more and go to a basement and turn off his Twitter and watch <laughs> Shark Week for the next two years, I think he'd win re-election pretty easily. Just The fact Twitter that he off. does not, <laughs> if, if he just turned Twitter off, and just did rallies. Like every so often, you just go out and do these big rallies. You know, just set him on the road. Put him on the. Do, he he loves the rallies. He's good at them. Um, and and nobody takes that seriously what he has to say in the rally. So there's no real damage done. Exactly. If he could just do that, it, it's 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 the feeling of constant chaos that has got people upset. Honestly, I mean, because if if there were a feeling of stability and solidity, if he had shocked everyone and everything had been stable and solid, you'd look at the economic situation. You'd look at the foreign policy situation. You go. Things are pretty good. I right. mean, like, exactly. if we just looked at the situation and you didn't see the 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 name, the the surname that comes after president, you would think, okay, whoever's the president should be at fifty five percent approval rating. Uh, and then you know he says stuff. Well, the, the dude says a lot of stuff. See, that's the thing. The media narrative, which I know you've spoken to, and I interviewed you for my book Fault Line, where I talked about this. But you know, you you go through and you start to look at it, and you've got on one side Trump, who's so over the top and, and says all these things, tweets all these things. But then you have the press. What are some of your views and concerns on how the press has covered Trump? Well, so I think there are two things to to point out about the press coverage. One is, of course, they've been hypocrites in the sense that they barely covered Obama, and now they cover Trump up the wazoo. Everything is hysterical, hair on fire reporting. We're all going to die. Nuclear war is imminent. This kind of stuff. Um, that that is deeply, deeply irritating. And the attempt to leap to every possible conclusion from every small bit of news. Well, this is what's going to take him down. Well, this is what's going to lead to impeachment. Well, this is what's going to lead to the apocalypse. Now, all that stuff is is really really over the top. So that's that's number one. Number two, I think the President Trump, when he says fake news and he uses that label to apply to every piece of news that does not favor him, uh, I, I think that that's a big mistake for Republicans to embrace. I also think that the media play into it by being bad at their jobs. I mean, if the media right. were better at their jobs, then it would be a lot easier for them to fight back against the perception that they're self-involved narcissists who are simply attempting to make a headline for themselves by being the next Woodward and Bernstein without actually doing the legwork. <laughs> like he he overplays his hand, but then they play right into it, and the, he ends up with real examples, which is the pr a real problem for I think everybody because we we've got to be able to trust the trust the press to a degree, but at the same time the <laughs> the press have failed us for decades. So it's uh it's a really weird dynamic, and it's interesting to watch that play out. Um, I've got to ask you though, and I know we're running out of time here, but 
abortion. That's a big issue for you. Um, it's something you've spoken a lot about. And I love all the headlines. I used to write some of them. You know, Ben Shapiro hammers whoever, you know, some college student who destroys, <laughs> destroys <yeah. laughs> skewers. And you, Sets you know, on the, fire, burns body, <laughs> dumps in ditch, yeah. <laughs> there was another one that was really good. I can't remember it today that I saw. But um, why are you so passionate on this issue? Well, I, mean, I, I do think it's the great moral issue of our time. I think that there are very few issues where you can confidently look forward 100 years and say, people are going to look back at us and say, we're barbarians. People are going to look back at us and say that we were engaged in an act of great moral evil. I mean, we, we look back in the past and we say, how could people own slaves? I mean, what sort of evil human beings would own slaves? And then you realize that this was a common mode of thought for most of human history, and human beings are capable of great evil when they don't actually think about the evil that they're doing. This is one that's just obvious to me, that as science develops, as we are able to get better pictures inside the womb, as we realize the innate value of every human life that, that springs from conception, uh, it's, it's going to be harder and harder to defend this stuff. And I think, frankly, it's obvious right now. I think you have to be woefully blind to take seriously the democratic position that you should be able to murder a baby up to the point that it exits the birth canal. It's just, it's, it's, a, great, it's a great moral evil of our time. And speaking out in sort of shaded terms about the actual killing of, of human babies is beyond, it's, it's beyond compare. It's, it's the, the fact that it's even an issue is, is beyond me. And I, I'm not talking about even, you know, the arguments over three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, right. which I think, right. uh, you know, I, I, we, can, we can talk about why I believe that abortion should be banned even in those circumstances. Um, but the fact is the Democratic Party platform says a full baby should be, you should be able to carve its brains out. And that's just, it's insane. how in the world is not a horror movie? This is, this is just out, out, it's out of the norm. It, it's, 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 beyond, it's beyond evil. It's crazy. Well, the thing that was eye-opening to me was covering the Gosnell trial when, it, you know, being in that courtroom and watching that evidence. I think, you know, I already had the views I had and I share, you know, a lot of your views on this, but seeing that really changed me and it stuck with me over the years. And, you know, all of this, it's crazy because you think back to that third presidential debate, and I think Hillary really shot herself in the foot on that. And, and so many people, I mean, I know people who were going to vote for her, and those comments, the way that it was handled really changed them. And so with that, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, you talked about being, you know, willfully blind. Why do you think so many people are blind on this? Because it, there are a lot of people who just don't seem to get it. I think there are a lot of people who don't want to get it. I think there are a lot of people who have bought into the idea that it's a it's some sort of imposition on a woman's body to talk about the person growing inside her. Uh, and it's, it's convenient. I, I, frankly, I think people are just, people don't like being inconvenienced. And anytime you make a moral argument, it's inconvenient. Uh, the, I noticed this first when I was at the 2012 DNC, and there are a group of anti-abortion protesters who are standing outside holding some of those ugly photos of aborted fetuses. And my first reaction, being from Los Angeles and growing up in a liberal milieu, uh, was, well, that's really gauche. That's really gross. I can't, I mean, why are they standing out in public with that? And people were just blithely walking past these posters. And then it occurred to me, well, but these people are right to be trying to show the horror of this thing. Like, I'm sure there are people who feel the same way. If you were, if you were out there show, uh, showing photos of, you know, genocide in Myanmar, uh, there'd be people who walk right by and say, why are we, why are we being shown these gauche photos? If it's 1930, if it's 1943 and people are showing Holocaust photos in public and you're saying, wow, that's, that's really gross. It's ruining my day. People don't like to have their day ruined. And unfortunately, in order to actually make moral positions clear, sometimes you have to ruin people's days with, with actual facts that are ugly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the facts of abortion are ugly and hideous, which is why we use euphemisms all the time, terminating a pregnancy. Abortion itself is a euphemism. And when you talk about the actual procedure, it gets a lot less comfortable to talk about the quote-unquote woman's right to choose when you're talking about the actual D&E procedure or DNC procedure. 
Well, and it's interesting because that's why, you know, being in that Gosnell courtroom, that was the first time I saw a lot of those images. I, I saw them in passing, but I was forced to sit there and watch them. And the defense, his own defense, was that, you know, abortion's a brutal thing. It's a horrible th- This is what goes on in an abortion. I mean, that was the defense they used. And it, it's just, it's remarkable to see that. And not to have a sudden topic shift, but we're going to. Um, one of my last questions for you. You can't seem to stop costing um, universities a ton of money because I, I look back last year, I think it was in September uh, the University of Berkeley spent a half a million dollars, I think it was, preparing for you to speak there for security. Um, and, and this has been an issue repeatedly being uninvited and, you know, colleges not being open to hearing other perspectives. What what in the world is going on <laughs> that we that colleges have become a place where there's just total and utter intolerance? Uh, I, I think that, again, that there's this, this bubble of comfort that's been created and presenting facts in that bubble of comfort makes people uncomfortable. It ruins their day. And so whenever I show up, people get very, very upset. And then, obviously, I am blamed for, this, for the spending on security. Like, there's a report from Berkeley that when Shapiro comes, we have to spend half a million dollars. Really? Literally the year before, I came, and you spent zero dollars. So why is it? What changed? I'm the same human. They're I like said the same thing. Boarding up ATMs. I mean, it's, you're, I think you had a, some quote, like, I'm not the one robbing the ATMs. I'm not the one smashing windows. You know, it's... It's remarkable to me that, that this is the place where people have allowed themselves to be and that we've encouraged yeah. this as, as a culture. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's bad for the country. We're all going to need to stop with the, with the radical miscalculation of, of how bad things are and start to recognize that we do live in the freest, most prosperous country in the history of the world. And if most people over the course of human history were plopped down in the middle of the United States right now, they would literally think they died and went to heaven. So maybe we should be a little more careful when we talk about we're in the middle of a civil war. And instead, we might want to start actually trying to make logical arguments to one another. All right. Final question for you, and then I'm going to let you go here. Um, and you may have already said this, but I'm just going to ask again because I think it's important. Um, is there anything you would want to clarify about yourself that you think people out there get wrong? Well, I mean, I think people get wrong that I'm either a Trump sycophant or an ardent never-Trump voice who always opposes the president. That's obviously not true. Uh, I think people get wrong the idea that uh, that people don't change their views over time. I've been writing since I was 17 years old, so I assume that some of the stupid things I say when I'm 19, I no longer hold when I'm 34, because what were you doing when you were 19? Um, and I think also people get wrong that I'm deliberately trying to provoke a response. I actually like spending my days not being bothered. Uh, and <laughs> and the, the fact that I say things and people are bothered by them, I, I feel like that's more your problem than mine. Right, right. Well, listen, I love it. I appreciate you coming on, and we'll have to catch up sometime soon. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Billy Hallowell Podcast. Visit Billy on Facebook or Twitter at Billy Hallowell for more on faith, culture, entertainment, and plenty more.